The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also on soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. And uh, wow, okay, that was a little loud on the music there, but... uh, (laughs) Hope we didn't blow your ears off too much. I'm Todd Blodingars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk television show, available on BMC Channels 9 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Glad to be joined uh, once again. Well, it's going to be the first of several uh, Toddcasts we're going to do uh, to celebrate the Patriots winning their sixth Super Bowl in the last 18 seasons. Just uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, when I was a, a wee little lad, I, uh, well, maybe I was never little, but I was a wee lad, uh, and uh, I never could have imagined that uh, the team I rooted for would be six-time Super Bowl champions, actually tied now all-time with the Pittsburgh Steelers for the most Super Bowl wins. It's uh, just uh, been incredible, and of course, uh, this current run, three Super Bowls in five years, four appearances in five years, and uh, we're glad once again to be joined uh, here on the Toddcast by Evan Lazar, who uh, came on periodically uh, through the season. He is the uh, Patriots beat reporter for CLNS Media, which you can find online at clnsmedia.com, also on Twitter, at CLNS Media. He's also the co-host of the Patriots All-22 podcast, and uh, CLNS Media has its own app that you can download at iTunes and Google Play stores as well. And you can also follow Evan on Twitter. His handle is at EZLazar, L-A-Z-A-R. And uh, Evan, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, for coming back on the po- on the Toddcast again. Sure, of course. I'm happy to do it. Well, you know, I'm trying to, uh, whoa, having some, having some really loud audio issues, but that's probably better than not having any sound at all. Uh, okay, so, uh, you know, Evan, I think the last time we had you on, if I remember correctly, it was following the Tennessee game. And if I also recall correctly, you were basically talking me off the ledge. That was not a... Uh, uh, a memorable game uh, for the Patriots, and I was feeling pretty down after that game, and I had you on, and uh, you were telling me that things weren't quite as bad as they seemed. And then, of course, a month later, or a few weeks later, the Patriots lost back-to-back games to the uh, Dolphins and Steelers. And, uh, you know, I guess my very first question before we even get into the game itself is just, uh, I mean, when it, you know, six weeks ago, Evan, did you see any possibility of this coming, you know, even as the most wide-eyed optimist that you might be? Yeah, absolutely, and I think the the biggest thing that I saw coming and, and the reason why I wasn't really panicking with the Patriots was two things. One, I really felt like what they had done on defense, especially really before the bye week in that whole, you know, kind of 12, 11-week stretch was pretty vanilla. They really didn't do any of the scheming in the front seven to the degree that they did it in the second half of the season, you know, the stunts and the games and the different disguise blitzes and the zero blitzes did it at times. certainly wasn't until that Minnesota game where they started to turn it up. 
defensively and Belichick and Flores started to get way more creative and rely on the veterans that they had on the defensive side of the ball to be in the right places and execute a more complex game plan. That was, you know, step number one. And step number two was mainly that, one, I kind of thought that Julian Edelman has looked like Julian Edelman the entire season and winning MVP of the Super Bowl that was just as, you know, way of confirming that. I really didn't think or didn't buy into a lot of the people were saying that he had lost a step. It just didn't really make much sense to me what they were watching on the tape. It was pretty clear that he was just as quick and explosive as he's always been. And the second thing is is that his offensive line was slowly starting to come along and become a really dominant unit. It wasn't, you know, everybody wanted a big deal out of the running game and their run first and their heavy person on the team and they're pounding the rock and they're winning time of possession. But really what it is is not so much that they're leaning on the running game, it's that they leaned on the offensive line. The offensive line and pass protection and run blocking was just so spectacular throughout the entire postseason that that is kind of where the strength of their offense was. Maybe it wasn't the most dynamic Rob Gronkowski we've ever seen. And maybe Edelman was really the only guy that consistently won against man and zone. But they had an offensive line that was going to protect Brady and open up holes in the running game. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you there. And first of all, for the uh, record, Evan, I was never panicking, but uh, <laughs> I've never, pa- I haven't panicked as a Patriots fan. I think since uh, since Super Bowl 42, when I just took, naturally assumed that they were going to finish 19 and 0. Uh, but uh, and everything you're saying about the offense is true. Here's the thing. I mean, the defense, which at times, you know, was was playing well, and I, I understand they only gave up 17 points when they went to Pittsburgh, but you know, they were giving up big chunks of points throughout the season. And for them to do what they did in this year's version of three games to glory, shutting down the top, arguably the top three offenses in the league this year, uh, shutting out the Chiefs in their own stadium in the first half, shutting out the Rams in the first half of, of Super Bowl 53. I mean, this defense, you know, there's some guys on this defense that are, are decent. I don't know if I would call anybody great. None of them were named to Pro Bowls. I mean, I guess you got to give credit to the coaching here. I, again, I just didn't necessarily see this all coming together. And even history would dictate the Patriots having to go on the road uh, for a playoff game. Not that they've had to very often in the last 18 years, but when they have, you know, it's been sort of mixed results. Yeah, well, I'll say this. No one expected, not me, not any, not the biggest, you know, Patriots supporter on the planet that always sees the thing through rose-colored glasses, thought they were only going to give up three points to the Rams in the Super Bowl. It was an incredible performance that was also, you know, kind of added by Jared Goff having a really horrible game. Not to take anything away from what the Patriots' defense did. They were spectacular. But Goff also, when there were opportunities to make plays, just simply wasn't making them at a consistent enough level. And I think really with the defense, where it starts is the fact that they really were able to take that extra defensive back on the off of the field and play a lot more in a five defensive back package, which is nowadays nickel and now a base defense in the NFL because every team uses so many three wide receiver sets that really a lot of teams are not in you know your traditional base four three four three four four type defense anymore. So what they were able to do is they were able to take that guy, extra guy out of the basket because they relied heavily on their veterans and on an all pro cornerback and Stephon Gilmore who just played out of his mind for most of the season 
and they were able to then add an extra body into the front seven, and that extra body allowed them to stop the run a little bit better, first of all. That was the big thing about the Super Bowl, is they really didn't let that running game get going. Okay. And the second thing is, is they allowed them to really start blitzing more and, and have you know, no, no longer just go with like a four-man pass rush, but instead add that extra guy into the five-man pressure. Sometimes even six-man pressure, which is what we saw on the Stephon Gilmore interception. That was obviously a zero blitz. They brought six. So when you're able to bring five or six guys, mostly everything that you saw in the Super Bowl, other than the Gilmore interception with the five-man pressure, you're allowed to. You can kind of do a little bit more and you can get a little bit more pressure on the quarterback, and then you put that together with a good secondary, and it makes it difficult to throw the football. So really, I think what they were able to do, first and foremost, was they were able to stop the run a lot better after that Pittsburgh game for whatever reason, schematically. Maybe it was adding that extra guy in the box, or maybe just a little bit more better fundamentals from the guys in the defensive line, certainly, as well. And I also think they played a little bit more aggressive, especially in the Super Bowl. It wasn't so much of the two-gapping, you know, hold the in the back, run the guy down from sideline to sideline. They were shooting gaps, and they were getting in the backfield, especially the guys in the interior of the defensive line, to you know mitigate those wide zone schemes that the good approach is to get some inside pressure. And that's what they were able to do, and I think that really what it all boils down to is that they trusted the cornerbacks, especially on the outside, to cover with really one safety, either rolling towards Tyreek Hill or, or really uh, rolling towards Brandon Cooks in this past game or not at all to anybody, uh, more so in the middle of the field, kind of taking away the Rams crossing routes, different things that they like to do over the middle. So I think that really the big thing is, is that they could cover on the back end with four or five guys, which allowed them to rush more. Let me ask you this, Evan. Uh, I had over the two weeks leading up to the game, I had a chance to uh, look at uh, you know a few scouting reports uh, of the Rams, including yours, uh, and it, it felt like everyone who was talking about the Rams said, you know, I'm reading here they run 95 percent of their offense out of the same formation, and I mean that's what they do. So now I have to admit. As I'm watching the game with friends, I, I can't say I'm looking at every Rams offensive formation to to confirm this to myself that they're but could can I say this? And maybe you can answer this for me, Evan. Were they basically running the same type of offense they ran all season? And Bill Belichick of the Patriots, with two weeks to prepare for this, the fact that the that that Sean McVay, the next wonder coach possibly didn't make any adjustments at all. He said, I'm just gonna keep running the same thing and I'm gonna dare the Patriots to beat me with it. Is there a little, was there a little bit of that at play here? I think that that sums it up perfectly, honestly. They threw out 11 personnel, which is what, you know, that three wide receiver, one tight end, one running back personnel grouping. That was what they threw out of most of the game. They only really ran some two tight end sets on occasion. I think it was like three or four pass attempts out of those two tight end sets at 21 or 12 personnel, and that was it. And they pretty much you know, told the Patriots, all we're going to do is what we do, and we're just confident that our players are better than your players, and we're just going to simply out-execute you. And when you do that against the Belichick defense, you better hope that your players play really well because Belichick is going to sniff out every little nuance of your offense, especially when he has a bye week mixed in there to prepare for it. So Belichick basically had McVay's number the whole game. And I think the other thing, that makes it difficult for McVay is he's got a young quarterback in Jared Goff who really struggled with the mental aspect of the game right now. His crossing speed, his ability to read 
field, his understanding of connections and what route concepts and defenses are trying to do is limited to the point where they doesn't have a ton of adjustments that he can really make that Goff can handle right now. So I think that even though he tried to make some second-half adjustments, it seems, on the tape, it's difficult to do like what the Patriots would do with Tom Brady, where in the middle of the game they can realize, okay, our game plan isn't working. We're going to have to go to something totally different. And Brady, because he's, you know Brady, is able to just adjust on the fly. That's not something that every quarterback can do. So they've been running the same offense with Jared Goff all year long and really last year, too. There wasn't really much that McVeigh could go to that Goff felt comfortable running, is my guess, because really, you know, they ran their offense and the Patriots knew exactly what they were going to do. They had the Patriots had a few nice coverage wrinkles that they threw at the Rams that the Rams weren't expecting, some more zone coverage, some quarters looks, that kind of thing that really took away some of the good things that the Rams offense could do. And there was just no adjustment and there was really no Goff never really understood exactly what Belichick was doing to him, and it was a little bit of a tough house in that respect. So I think that there's that, and you know, you could really make the same argument for the Patriots' offense on the other side of the ball until the fourth quarter that Wade Phillips really had Brady and McDaniels number this way that you know the Patriots had Goff and McVeigh. But to your point about the Goff McVeigh dynamic, uh, one of the things again, reading you know a lot of the scouting reports leading up to this game. Uh, you know, what they're most well-known for, or one of the things they're well-known for, is that McVeigh will consistently talk to Goff in his helmet right up until the 15 seconds when, of course, the communications are cut off. So, again, did you notice this as you were watching the game unfold from the Patriots' defensive standpoint? Did you see that there were times, or maybe as you were looking at the All-22 film, uh, that they would line up defensively one way, and then when it got down to like 15 seconds on the play clock and the Patriots' defense knew that the communication was now cut off and Goff had to think for himself without getting any assistance from his head coach, that that, you know, then they kind of tried to mix things up. That's when they went into different defensive formations or different defensive looks to just confuse Goff further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a combination of a few things. One thing was that their play, the Patriots defense actually had two play calls often called on the field, and they were set one way in that you know sweet spot for Sean McVay and Jared Goff. When it got to 15 seconds or when Goff audibled out of a play because of a loop that McVay, they then would change the play call themselves and check into a different play and then move the defense around. And now that play that McVay called against, let's say it's a too high coverage, and he called a too high beater, now it's getting run against a high coverage or a post-safety coverage. Now you got the wrong play on. And Goff isn't the type of guy that is going to then be able to check back out of that play, or maybe sometimes he doesn't have the time to do that, and they just run the wrong play against the Patriots' defense. The second thing that they did was that playground or amoeba defense that we've seen them do a lot of on third down specifically. They did it a couple of times on third down against the Goff where everybody's just moving before the snap, and he doesn't really know what's coming. And the Patriots, for the most part, bailed out of it until that Gilmore interception went out of the house and they forced that turnover. They were bailing out of it, and they were putting all the safeties up in the box 
and then right before the snap, they were dropping one deep and dropping one into that intermediate robber level, and they were running their single high coverages at it. So that confused Goff a little bit because he was looking at one thing, he thought it was zero, and then the ball was snapped, and it wasn't zero coverage. It was cover one or cover three or whatever the case may be. And then the third thing that they did was really decided that they were going to rotate a lot of their coverages post-snap as well, so they would show split safety and rotate into post safety after the snap or show kind of like a man look and then it was actually zone or stuff like that. And they were confusing Goff throughout the entire game one way or the other, whether it was calling two plays or any of the three ways that I just went over. And he just wasn't ready for it. And he just couldn't really process it. And without McVay kind of telling him or holding his hand along the way, he was missing a lot of throws. And we all know the track record, of course, with uh, Belichick. Uh, when when a young quarterback is facing a a Belichick-led defense for the first time, uh, certainly, you know, as you said, it led to all the confusion that that he had there. Again, we're joined here by Evan Lazar. He's the Patriots beat reporter for CLNS Media. Dot com and you can follow Evan on Twitter. His own handle is at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. Evan, you mentioned Wade Phillips and what he was able to do. Uh, now uh, Brady all-time, now 7-3 and three against Wade Phillips, coached either defenses or maybe when Phillips was also a head coach uh, and uh, had his defense out there. But despite that, despite the fact that he did come up with some wrinkles, and obviously the Patriots were held to just three points offensively through the first three quarters, but when it really mattered, first of all, I mean, Brady was able to move the offense in that fourth quarter and and make the drives that he needed to, but, you know, also, uh, you know, even though Wade Phillips might have dialed up a great defensive game plan, they didn't have an answer for Julian Edelman, and they kind of had to know going into the game that, you know, Edelman, who had been playing so well through the the Chargers and Chiefs playoff games, that he was going to be a big part of it, and no matter who they defensively tried to cover Edelman with, uh, they did not have an answer. Yeah, I mean, Edelman, I can't say about how well he played in that game. If you're a young receiver, play high school ball, middle school ball, whatever the case may be, and you want to learn how to run routes, just go watch the Super Bowl tape because Julian Edelman put on an absolute route-running clinic. You know, from footwork to hand usage, which is an underrated part about route-running, to acceleration and ability to change speeds throughout the route. I mean, it was it was a Mona Lisa route-running, really. It really was. They put Salim, they put Marcus Peters, they put Nick Ruby Coleman, they put Linebacker Brackett. They did every possible way. Phillips really tried everything that he could have possibly done, and not a single player on the Rams' defense could keep up with Edelman. And really, it wasn't that, you know, obviously the Patriots didn't score a ton of points in this game, so the, the catches didn't necessarily convert into points for Edelman, but a lot of his catches in the first three quarters were so crucial because they kept the offense on the field and they got a couple of first downs out of him that kept the chains moving and kept the defense on the field, offense, you know, defense off the field, offense on the field, and helped the Patriots really control the time of possession and control the pace of the game. So even though it wasn't, you know, a big offensive explosion in score 30 points, all of Edelman's catches, a lot of them coming on third down, a lot of them coming, you know, the big play first down variety was just so crucial to the game flow regardless. And I think that's probably why he won MVP more so than anything else was just because he was the only odd weapon on either team that was really making those kinds of plays. So he had an incredible game. Even though the Patriots defense, it kind of feels like one of the defensive players, maybe Dante Hightower, Stephon Gilmore, should have won MVP because they only, you know, the way the defense played. 
it was incredible to watch Edelman out there. And he was certainly the best offensive player on the field for either team. Oh, there's no question about that. And had there been a, uh, a one Patriot defensive player who like stood up, you know, head and shoulders over the rest, I think they probably would have given the MVP to a defensive player. But given that you know that you had solid play from Gilmore Hightower uh, and and Van Noy and others, that you know it was just it would it would have been like a split vote. Maybe you would have had co MVPs. But certainly, there's no question Edelman was deserving. And yeah, I was saying it to to my friends I was watching the game with that literally he was the only offensive player you know in the game for for either team and and the. Thing Thing that just boggles my mind, and I have to go back to this. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, his MVP honors, ten catches for 141 yards, and even though he didn't score a touchdown, you talk about his great route running. And you know, I have to go back to the fact this guy was drafted in the seventh round, and he was a college quarterback. They converted him into a wide receiver. Belichick, the coaching staff, they saw something with this kid that they thought, you know, they could do, you know, he what they didn't picture him as a as an NFL quarterback. They but they could picture him doing something else and and that's the thing, you know, when you talk about receivers who can run great routes, I mean, or know how to do it. Yes, Jerry Rice, he's been a wide receiver his entire life. Julian Edelman has been a wide receiver just since his NFL career started, and I think it just makes it all the more remarkable that he's arguably one of the best at his position in the game right now. Yeah, basically when the Patriots drafted Edelman, they told him, look, we don't know what position you're going to play. We know it's not going to be quarterback. We're thinking it's going to be wide receiver, but we just know that you're a football player. You know, we just know that you understand how to play the game. You understand the angles and kind of the little details and the nuances that go into football, and obviously you have a ton of athleticism. So they really just said, you know what, we're just going to take you and we're going to see what happens. And Edelman actually has told the story a couple of times where he had a ton of offers uh, as an undrafted free agent if he didn't go drafting because he was drafted at the end of the seventh round. And he had so many offers that the Patriots actually took him with their final selection in that draft to avoid having to outbid somebody or maybe lose him. Uh, in undrafted free agency, and it was actually uh, the running backs coach, Ivan Sears, that was the one that went to Edelman's pro day and worked Edelman out, and Ivan just came back and obviously was glowing about the guy's work ethic and, and his ability to really play multiple positions and beat the punt and kicks as well. So well, it, it, was, it was a hidden gem, for sure. But I think the league kind of knew that Edelman had something, um, but obviously I don't think anybody knew that he had this, and the fact that he had no experience at receiver in college really hurt him. Like, if he had played receiver in college, he probably goes a little bit higher in the draft if he shows some of the skills that he's shown in his pro career. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll th- you know, it just, it just boggles my mind to think, you know, arguably the two biggest players in this recent run, uh, four Super Bowl appearances in five years and three championships, you have sixth round draft pick Tom Brady throwing to seventh round draft pick Julian Edelman. That just you're never going to see that again in, in any other uh, sport, or you know, certainly not in the NFL. Let me ask you this, Evan, really quick while we're talking Edelman: Do you think, based on his postseason numbers, he is a, a worthy candidate for the Pro Football Hall of Fame? We already know he's going to be getting a red jacket to go into uh, the Patriot Hall of Fame someday. Yeah. Look, I, I don't. To me, it's still a no, even though there's. MVP realms now in this case because the case that people can now make is he wins one, right? He doesn't have the career numbers that you know somebody like a Randy Moss or Jerry Rice or Terrell Owens or someone you know at the top of every single receiving career receiving list. 
but he has enough of a peak in his career, and then he obviously has the prime time playoff performances in the Super Bowl MVP. If you look at the career resumes between Edelman and Swanson, they're like almost identical. They have about around the same career receiving yards. They both have a Super Bowl MVP now. It's kind of a similar player, even though they're very different players in terms of how they're, they're playing style. So that's going to be the argument is that there are a couple of people in the Hall of Fame that were really more short, short of primes and huge upside in the postseason, and that's kind of where there are types of careers that they had. So there is an argument for him to be in the Hall of Fame, but at the same time, he's like 280th or something like that in career receiving yards in NFL history. He's even further down the list in career touchdowns. In terms of the counting stats and some of the box scores that are really what puts you over the top when it comes to Hall of Fame voting, there's just not a ton of guys that get into the Hall of Fame that don't have, you know, gaudy career numbers at the skill positions. I mean, Edelman has a chance to get in, but like Chad Johnson, for example, who has over 10,000 career receiving yards, is probably never going to get in. It just seems like there's kind of a mixed bag of which direction this can go in, but I think that, like I said, Lynn Swan is a, a nice little comp that Edelman can use and, and the committee can use on his behalf to kind of support his Hall of Fame game. Yeah, no question. I remember watching Lynn Swan play, and, and there, you know, to me, it's, yeah, I, I would definitely say that'd be a great case uh, for Edelman to make. Well, let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the quarterback now and, and a bona fide uh, first ballot Hall of Famer for sure and going to Canton in uh, Tom Brady. Uh, was not his, his best game, uh, but he did complete 60% of his passes, and most of those uh, coming in the second half, 21 for 35, 262 yards. He didn't get a touchdown pass, and he did throw a pick, and his quarterback rating was only 71, but... You know, when the fourth quarter came around and the game was tied at three and he had the ball with about nine minutes left, he just knew he was going to be able to march the team down the field, make the perfect passes when he had to. And uh, we've obviously talked about Edelman already, but he was also able to find uh, Rob Gronkowski. If this was Gronk's swan song, and we, we won't know that maybe for a couple more weeks, but uh, Gronk, six catches, 87 yards, and the biggest catch of all uh, was was the one that got him down to the uh, uh, the first and goal situation and, in fact, uh, led to the only play run in the red zone this entire game, which, again, is another mind-boggler of this Super Bowl. Yeah, so basically what happened to Brady and, and the Patriots' offense in the first couple of quarters was that Wade Phillips really did a nice job of kind of mushing up the secondary of the Rams and making everything, whether it was man or zone coverage, to look really similar, and therefore it kept the Patriots a little bit off balance and it prevented Tom Brady from doing what he patently does, his pre-snap reads. So a lot of the times when Brady knows just from looking at you pre-snap what kind of coverage you're going to play, he already has you beat. We saw that really the Chargers game, but even the Chiefs game too. But both of those games are great examples of he just has you beat before the ball is even snapped. So what Wade Phillips did was he took away that option and he played some man zone kind of combination coverages and match coverages, which confused Brady a little bit, or maybe not confused him, but slowed him down a little. So he had to make all of his decisions after the snap as opposed to making them pre-snap. So that was a good little wrinkle for Phillips and certainly a well-executed game plan by the Rams' defense. And then in the fourth quarter, the Patriots did something that they haven't done all year, and that is is they put Tom Brady in shotgun in an empty formation and 22 personnel, which means there was two backs and two tight ends on the field. So you had Tom Brady, 
in the in the backfield by himself with James Devlin, Rex Burkett, Dwayne Allen, Rob Gronkowski, and Julian Edelman as his five eligible receivers on the play. So those are two guys, Dwayne Allen and James Devlin, that are basically afterthoughts as receivers for a defense. But what it did was it got some favorite matchups for the Patriots inside the numbers, and especially on that big one with the Gronkowski. It got Gronk matched up on a linebacker, and that was a quick, easy decision for Brady. They were in the same place three times in a row. Hosswhite, one of their go-to plays, it's an empty formation set where they run two seam routes, one on either side of Brady, and they have Edelman run a little bit of an option route underneath it. Either clear in the middle of the field for Edelman to get a one-on-one with that option route, or you get a go ball basically up the seam, which is what they have with Gronkowski. It really was a great adjustment by Josh McDaniels in one where the Rams and Wade Phillips, there was no way they could have expected it because the Patriots have never done that. They've never ran that set in that phase before all season long, so why would they run it now? So it was a nice little adjustment to go to that, and that's kind of what opened up the offense. Yeah, and what a great contrast you just described, too, Evan, uh, that the Patriots running an offense that they really didn't run all year compared to the Rams, who were running out of the same formation and same set for like 95% of their plays, and Sean McVay not willing to throw a wrinkle in the way Josh McDaniels uh, and uh, Belichick and the, and the offense did. So there's, uh, yeah, there, there's that. Uh, you know, again, this is just such a throwback game in so many ways. Uh, you know, again, as I brought up, that Sony Michelle two-yard touchdown run was the only play either team had in the red zone the entire game. Not to mention, you had no pass interference penalties called in this game. You had no replay challenges called in this game. This was just a downright, you know, old school, even an old school type of Super Bowl score, 13-3, now the all-time lowest score. And the other interesting comparison there is it broke the record set by the uh, 72 Dolphins completing their their undefeated season uh, with a 14-7 win in Super Bowl seven against the Redskins. And by the way, the the Patriots now are, uh, by winning a Super Bowl the year after losing, well, the last team that did that was the 72 Dolphins. So, uh, you know, here I thought that the Patriots would never get compared to the 72 Dolphins again after failing at 19-0, but lo and behold, it, it took 11 years, but uh, they were able to get in the same conversation with them again, uh, you know, coming back to uh, to win a Super Bowl the year after losing, which, again, is, there's only three teams in, in Super Bowl history that have done it, uh, the other one being the Cowboys a, a year prior to Miami's uh, win over the Redskins. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was an old-school game. I understand that nowadays people want to see offense, people want to see touchdowns, I get all of that. And, you know, it wasn't a pretty game for either offense, let's face it. And it, it wasn't a good game by either quarterback in particular either. It's not really Brady woke up a little bit in that fourth quarter with some of the wrinkles that McDaniels threw out there and just some good play by the players as well. So it wasn't the type of game that we're used to seeing. It certainly wasn't the track meet or, you know, the college football-style game that the Super Bowl was last year with the Eagles and the Patriots where they put up like 1,100 yards of offense and over 60 points combined. So it definitely wasn't that game. But, you know, when you watch the tape and you and you really kind of digest it all, this was a defensive showcase. I mean, both defenses really played spectacularly for most of the game. You can talk all you want, and I love to talk about the X's and O's and the schematics and the game planning and the coaching that went into all of it, but at the end of the day, the 11 players or 12 or 13 players, if you count subs, 
that played in this game for each defense just played their hearts out and really played their asses off for most of the game. And that was kind of really the key to the whole thing. And even though that might not be as sexy as touchdowns and, you know, high-scoring games and games where there isn't as much defense, it certainly had its, you know, kind of greatness to it, I would say, in, in a way. And, and you know, it, it really had a type of game where you kind of felt like, for once, it, maybe not for once, but certainly in recent years, it kind of has always seemed like Brady has kind of put out Belichick in some of these games, and then they weren't able to get that done last year, obviously, and a lot of people blame the defense, rightfully so, for losing to the Eagles. And this year, it kind of felt like the defense actually handed Brady a trophy, uh, kind of throwing it back to maybe the earlier years of the dynasty, certainly against the, the Rams in 2001 or, or something like that, where it was the defense that won the game and Brady just closed it as opposed to Brady coming back from 28-3 to or Brady going against the Legion of Boom and putting up all those fourth quarter points or something like that. Well, even just the fact that you know the NFL this year was all about the offense and we had a 54-51 Monday night game with the, the Rams and the Chiefs and everyone was saying, this is the new NFL, this is what's how it's going to be and then the season ends with the lowest scoring Super Bowl in history. But you know, just getting to your point on the defense here, Evan, do you do you think that with I mean I don't think there was there was a little difference in the defensive personnel of the Patriots this year but not really that many differences between this year's squad and last year's do you think part of this is a bit of an indictment on Matt Patricia from last year he's got basically the same defensive guys and he can't you know he's struggling in that Super Bowl against the Eagles whereas uh, you know, Flores really has an ideal game plan, and you can see why, you know, he's he's gone after just a year calling the defensive plays for the Patriots. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, not as much because, really, I, I, I really think that the defense lives and dies with Belichick. It, it really starts and ends with him. If, it, if it's a good defensive performance, it's probably mostly Belichick, and if it's a bad one, you can blame him too, like in the Eagles last year. Also, you know, I know that we don't really need to rehash this every single time we talk about it, but when you bet your second-best cornerback on the team hours before the game starts, the defensive coordinator really has dealt a shitty hand in that situation. I mean, I don't really know what you're supposed to do when, you know, your second-best corner, let's say the Patriots just, like, took Dante Hightower off the field in this game for absolutely no reason. I don't know if the game really goes the same way. Not, you know, maybe Butler is not quite the same impact as Hightower, but, you know, someone like that. And I, I really think that it really is about Belichick. It's really about what he can do and what he comes up with. And I think the play caller is mostly just the guy that is picking the menu of plays and picking the style of play is really about Belichick and the scheming and, and the really – big-picture look of the way that the defense is approaching things. And one thing I want to give Belichick a ton of credit for is that he kind of morphs his defense or changes his identity more than any other coach, and he's so humble about it. You know, there's a lot of coaches that are kind of egotistical about the way that they coach the game, and then they say, hey, I coach this really well. My team is really good at it. I'm just going to keep doing it until somebody you know, proves me otherwise or stops me or you know prevents me from winning a championship or something like that. And Belichick doesn't look at it that way. Belichick looks at each week differently, and he's a very game plan specific coach. And he really learned this season a lot. I felt like, which is hard to believe, that a guy of his stature could learn so much in, in a 
Patrick, but he realized a lot of things schematically that the Patriots were doing under Matt Patricia just weren't simply, they weren't working. And they weren't, you know, giving them the type of defense that they needed or that they wanted. This year, he's really changed a lot about the defense in a short period of time schematically. And he always says it, too. He's, you know, he, he said it before the Super Bowl when he said Wade Phillips, you know, has kind of kept the same defense for 30-plus years. But I've changed a whole lot schematically over the course of time, and it couldn't be more true. I mean, the game plan that they, they ran against the Rams in the Super Bowl was completely different than what they ran against the Chiefs two weeks early you know it wasn't necessarily that they didn't stick to their same core coverage schemes or 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 pass rush schemes but the way that they called the game and the way that the game went and there's more zone coverage that they used instead of man coverage that is a complete change i mean in the chiefs game they played cover one man with a safety rotating towards tyree kill one double pretty much the entire game until the the second half they sprinkled in a little bit more cover three this game they played a bunch of different coverages a couple of different zone looks and they were really 50 50 man zone after being you know 55 45 man zone for most of the season so they played a little bit more zone and then they changed up the zones that they played so it really like a lot of credit goes to belichick for kind of reinventing this defense this year Sure, and I've been giving credit to Belichick for, for his 19 seasons. You go all the way, you go back to the first Rams Super Bowl and the coaching plan he came up there to to, to stop the greatest show on turf and, and slow them down. Yes, it's always been about him morphing uh, both defense and even the offense too, uh, to, you know, trying to zig when the other team's expecting a zag. And, you know, maybe when you just compare last year's Super Bowl to this year's, maybe if you could just sum it up in a couple uh, words, you wanted to bring up Malcolm Butler again, fine. How about, I'll just bring up simple as this. Uh, they didn't have Edelman last Last year, and, and you know how much Brady loves having him around. I mean, he's won three Super Bowls when Edelman has been on the field in the last few years. Uh, and then the other part of it is just simply that, you know, they last year, the Eagles and Doug Peterson, they coached. They know the only way you're going to be able to beat Belichick, you gotta you got to do the unexpected. you got to throw Belichick off his game, whereas Sean McVay, who's half of Belichick's age and, and showed it in the, in the Super Bowl, decided I'm just going to do what I've been doing all year and dare him to stop me, like you said. And they did. The other thing that, yeah, the other thing that Doug Peterson did and Nick Foles did that was way different between the than the McVay Goff pairing was they played fearless. They played fearless the entire game, and Foles let it rip. He simply did. You know, he he saw it, and he threw it, and he let everything rip. And he was throwing, you know, tight window throws and making difficult throws that Jared Goff just couldn't even sniff in this game. So. That there's a lot to be said for the fact that when you play the Patriots, even beyond the schematic, you can't play them tentatively and you can't play them scared. You have to go out there and take the game from them because if you just let them kind of mosey along and, and just kind of leave the game out there in the balance like Rams did in this Super Bowl, then the Patriots are going to take it. And they, the Patriots are one of those teams that can back into a lot of wins because they don't beat themselves. And they just didn't beat themselves in this game. The defense didn't have any egregious breakdowns in coverage or anything like that, obviously. You know, the J- Jason McCourty pass breakup, Brandon Cooks was wide open. That was the only time where the coverage really broke down and they were to get out of that situation. If you don't seize those types of opportunities against the Patriots and really bring it to them or put it on them, they're just going to take the game. And that's exactly what happened And this the Patriots have won a ton of games, and this is not like an indictment on them or anything. This is actually the opposite. They've won a ton of games over this dynasty just kind of not screwing up and being the team that kind of just outlasts the other team. 
and this is one of those games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, you, other teams do do tend to screw up at the end, and we've seen it countless times in, in all these Super Bowls over the years. I'm glad you brought up Jason McCourty. I was going to mention a couple of the, the new Patriots players who, for, for them, winning a Super Bowl was a new experience. Uh, Jason McCourty, obviously, uh, you know, and, and the you know being the first twins ever to play in a Super Bowl together. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Sony Michelle too, and his effort, uh, 18 carries, 94 yards, scoring the game's only touchdown and the strength of that running game. Talk about uh, both those guys a little bit, Evan. And, you know, you said even with McCourty, when he kind of was out of that play on Cooks, he was able to come back and and still, you know, he, he did a great job kind of covering, you know, getting there uh, because Goff waited so long to throw the ball, and then he, it gave Jason a, a chance to get there and break up the pass of the end zone. Yeah, it was a, it was a cover four quarters look, and both Devin McCourty and Jonathan Jones went with the same receiver over the middle, and it busted the coverage, and it let Cooks, you know, just be alone in the end zone. And obviously, Goff was extremely late to it, and it wasn't even the best pass, even when he did find it. And really, Jason McCourty just broke his assignment on the other side of the field and just took off for Cooks when he saw it happening and was able to break up the pass. And one of the points that you made about McCourty just never experiencing this before. That was actually something. There was a moment in the post-game locker room that I caught, you know, between Bob Kraft and Jason McCourty. And Bob Kraft said that, you know, Jason McCourty's excitement throughout this entire process, even back to just the Patriots winning the AFC East, kind of, you know, invigorated his team, or added some energy to this team, and kind of made the players not take some of this for granted. And a lot of players talked about that coming into the Super Bowl. Kyle Minnoy, kind of chief among them, that last year against the Eagles, they kind of took it for granted. They, well, we're the Patriots. We're always in this game. We're going to just win. We'll figure it out. You know, because they had beaten Seattle and Atlanta in the last two Super Bowls. So, oh, I think Jason McCourty kind of brought some hunger and brought some excitement and kind of reminded the guys that, hey, this doesn't happen for everybody as easily as it does for the Patriots. That winning the dividend, win playoff game, and making the Super Bowl, and then winning the Super Bowl, this is all stuff that you should really appreciate and, and really, uh, you know, take to heart. And I think that his excitement and his energy level and coming off the field after they went to the AFC, he's going crazy. He just won the division because he's never made the playoffs in his career. He's never won the division title in his career. And now all the Patriots players are like, oh, we did for years. You know, uh, why he's so excited about this. And that kind of realized and put it in perspective, I think, for a lot of the players. Well, perfect perspective for Jason McCourty is the fact he literally went from as low as you can go, 0-16 last year with the Browns, to hoisting the Lombardi Trophy and winning us. I mean, that's just, I mean, literally those are the two ends of the spectrum right there uh, in football. It's just, yeah, it really is incredible uh, the, the last couple of seasons. Yeah. Uh, he's had, uh, with the McCourties, uh, what, what do you think about the rumors about their, their uh, you know, Devin McCourty coming up with the rumors during Super Bowl week that, you know, they uh, he was thinking of retiring. What, what do you think about uh, any possibility for either of them? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's difficult when you're, it's in season or it's right after a Super Bowl win or something like that. It's it's very difficult for these players to kind of be in the right mindset and put things in perspective. I think Devin was, you know, being a little nostalgic, being a little bit dramatic when he said that, and Jason kind of joked about that too after the fact, you know, calling him a drama queen and stuff like that. And you know, but on some respects, you know, you can see it. You, they're both uh, in contract situations that are interesting. Jason's a free agent. 
Devin is due to make $14 million against the cap next year for the Patriots at uh, over the age of 30, which is obviously not a contract that the Patriots are going to want to keep on the books. So they're either going to have to renegotiate that deal and lower his cap hit for 2019, whether it's an extension or a pay cut or whatever the case may be. And there's some rumors out there that if they ask Devin to take a pay cut, uh, it could be pay cut or release for him, and he is going to opt to go play for another team or for or to retire if that's kind of the two options that they give him. And I think that, you know, there's also the element, which is what Devin was talking about, I think, on opening night, that, you know, now that they've won a Super Bowl together as brothers, and Devin, you know, obviously has three Super Bowl rings already, what more is there really for him to accomplish in the NFL? He's won one with his brother. He's won three now overall. He's had an extremely successful career. He's going to be a Patriots Hall of Famer. Uh, There's really not much more for him to do. So, therefore, you kind of see the culmination of his career or this being potentially the end. But at the same time, I think that if the Patriots can come to some sort of agreement with Devin on his 2019 contract and maybe bring Jason back on a team-friendly deal as well, that I, I think that they'll be back next year. But I definitely see where Devin's coming from. I mean, winning a Super Bowl with your twin brother, it, it doesn't get any better than that. So obviously the only thing that could happen is they lose next year, or even if they win again, they've already won once. So it's really, what more is there to accomplish if you're a 40 twin right now? Yeah, that's true. And speaking of retirement, of course, uh, we've been speaking of it uh, for well over a year now with Rob Gronkowski. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, of the possibility that uh, Gronk's going to hang it up here in the next, uh, or announce that he'll do that in the next week or two? Well, everything that everybody's hearing on Gronkowski is still that he himself has not come to a decision on that, and he's really going to take the next couple of weeks to kind of digest the Super Bowl and and put a little bit of distance between himself and this win because obviously right now he's on a high. And you, when you feel like that after winning a Super Bowl, you feel like you could go out there and play for 10 more years, let alone one more year. So I think that he really needs to take some time away. But I think the biggest thing and the kind of the more underrated thing of this whole Gronkowski thing is Tom Brady's impact on it. Uh, Tom Brady obviously is under contract for one more year. I would expect that they're going to sign some sort of an extension with Brady this offseason because it just makes too much sense for both sides, both against the cap and also obviously Brady wants that extension so to make him happy. And I just don't know if Tom Brady is going to let Gronk retire. And he's a tough guy to say no to, right? I mean, we know that. And Bob Kraft is also a notorious guy to, that is tough to say no to as well. So I think that there's a very good chance that Gronk might be personally leading towards retirement, but that Brady and Bob Kraft kind of convince him to come back. Because as long as Brady is playing, he kind of – He's going to want Rob Gronkowski on his team. He's going to want Gronk and he's not Julian Edelman because those are his guys. So I think that, you know, that's an underrated angle of this whole thing is how persuasive Brady can be to bring Gronk back. And, uh, of course, speaking of Brady, uh, let's talk a little bit about his legacy now. Uh, six Super Bowls more than any other player uh, in NFL history. Of course, the eleven Super or the nine Super Bowl appearances puts him second all time. When when you look at the list of, uh, of, free, of Super Bowl appearances, it goes Patriots 11, Brady 9, Pittsburgh, Dallas, and uh, the 
with eight appearances uh, there. I'm already blanking out on the third. Denver, right, the third team. But let me, so let me ask you here, six and three now in Super Bowls, which as we were kind of talking, I think, in the week leading up to the game, uh, looks a lot better than five and four. Uh, you know, in fact, it, it's interesting. I was even hearing discussions the last couple days. It now feels like you have to compare Brady. You have to actually leave the NFL to compare Brady's uh, legacy to, like, say, a Michael Jordan who won six titles. What just what are your overall thoughts, uh, you know, having seen uh, Brady up close for this one? Uh, just overall, uh, what this is, how this how this ex, this other Super Bowl win now just adds on to his legacy. Yeah, I think that his legacy, I mean, he's pretty cemented as the greatest quarterback of all time. I don't see how you can make an argument against that, and most people don't even try to make an argument against that. If you listen to a lot of the you know, hot take artists like the Shannon Sharps and the Max Kellerman, they've kind of backed off of that point a little bit. And Shannon Sharps' cop-out is that he doesn't think that Brady's the best football player of all time. He just thinks he's the best quarterback of all time. I don't know. A lot of this stuff I just think is ridiculous. Like, the guy's great. The guy is easily the best quarterback of all time. I don't think that's really debatable anymore. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. What more does he really have to prove legacy-wise, or what more is there really to say about him? I think that all these debates, uh, to me, are just kind of boring, to be honest with you, because it's just like, I don't know. No one, There's no committee that decides these things. There's no number or statistic that we can use. So everybody can kind of just have their opinion and make an argument or a case either way. You know, people will say like he's up against like Michael Jordan now, for example, who is six and zero in his finals and Brady's six and three to get to his six. So is it better that Brady went to the extra three and lost them or is it better that Jordan has the perfect record? That was used to be the age old argument against Brady when he only had four against Montana, right? Was you know, Brady was four and two and Montana was four and zero and Right. I, I, I just think that the biggest thing is about Brady and just kind of witnessing it, at least, you know, secondhand, because obviously I'm not, you know, involved a ton in the locker room or just kind of media that we get to kind of be a fly on the wall on occasion for these types of things. I think the biggest thing that you realize is that it's not just physical with him. It's the dedication to the craft and the ability to kind of work at it harder than anybody else that sets him apart. And then also... He's just a great teammate. Uh, everyone in the locker room, and I don't think that it's fake, just talks about how how great of a teammate he is and how great of a leader he is. And when you look at some of the other leaders that, you know, in the city of Boston, and we have heard all year about Kyrie Irving's issues with leading the Boston Celtics, and the biggest thing that I can see is the difference between Brady and a lot of these other guys is that Brady doesn't lead by talking. You know, Brady doesn't come out in his press conferences and call people out. He doesn't come out and say, I'm the leader of this team, I'm the captain, you know, that kind of thing. He just does it, and he just does it behind closed doors. He takes care of his business and out of the limelight, and then he also is the hardest-working guy there, and that's contagious. You know, if you're a young player on the Patriots or you're even a guy like a Julian Edelman or a Rob Gronkowski, and you see this quarterback that has five Super Bowls, now six Super Bowl rings, and he's the first one in and the last one out, and he's working out every single day, and he's spending, I think it's around 16 hours a day, he says, on football during the season. You know, and really, the only other eight hours that he of the day that he occupies is with sleeping. 
<laughs> I mean, how do you just not kind of match that or even just attempt to match that to kind of attempt to be on his level? And that's contagious throughout the entire roster. So now you have a bunch of guys that are doing that. So now you have hopefully 53 guys that are doing that. Yeah, and it's funny, too, Evan, that you said, uh, you know, you, you sort of threw that line out uh, talking what Brady might say. Brady doesn't go around saying, I'm the I'm the captain. Well, he actually technically isn't a captain. I mean, you don't see him out there for the coin tosses or, or anything. So uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, it really is kind of, it kind of sums him up right there. And, of course, now he's also the first 40-year-old quarterback to uh, ever win a Super Bowl. And he has a 30-10 and 10 record in the postseason, which is just I mean, the fact that he has started 40 playoff games uh, is, is crazy enough. Um, the fact that he's won 75% of them is just even, you know, what, what else, what more can you say about number 12? Well, I think the biggest thing about him, too, just from a playing perspective, is that throughout all of these games, his floor is always so high that even when he doesn't play well, like he did, this didn't really play well for most of the game on Sunday, it's never catastrophic to his team. It never puts the team, even in the Giants Super Bowls or in the Super Bowl where he isn't at his best, the team is always still in the game because he's a, is able to at least give them something. Maybe he gives them a, a C or a C-plus performance when he's not on his game. But he's not an F like Jared Goff was in this game, and he's not a complete, you know, anchor to the offense when he's not playing well. So when he's great, when he's Brady, he's the best quarterback you've ever going to see. And then when he's a little bit off his game, he's like, you know, the fifth best quarterback you're ever going to see instead of, you know, a complete jag. So when you when you have that, I mean, it just it just gives this, uh, the other team the sense of, like, it's never over and we're never over the hump and we're never up by enough. And in this game, going into the fourth quarter, when you really looked at it, maybe when you were watching it live, when I was watching it live, your nerves kind of get the best of you and you, and you kind of don't realize that what you're looking at here is Belichick and Brady versus Goff and McVay in the fourth quarter to win the Super Bowl at a tie game. I mean... That one should have been easy for all of us to predict. Yeah, and you, and you brought up just how close all these uh, you know Brady-led Super Bowls have been for the Patriots. And, and again, you know, I'm thinking about their last win against Atlanta, the the six point win. The biggest at that time was the biggest margin of victory for the Patriots, and they had to go to overtime to do it. This time around, it's the lowest scoring Super Bowl in history. And now they've won for the first time by multiple scores, uh, a 10-point margin of victory, largest uh, in, in history for the franchise. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a weird way to get there. Uh, but obviously it, it kind of, you know, it's kind of fitting in, in a way that we finally got a Super Bowl where the Patriots, we still put it out, you know, obviously, uh, with, with that field goal at the end, could have made it a seven-point game and so on and so forth. But at least they got this one a little bit more comfortably, and it wasn't like one of those last-second Malcolm Butler overtime, uh, Adam and the Terry game-winning field goals, you know, those types of things. And after Gostowski missed the kick early in the game, he had a chance to redeem himself with that, that kind of game-clinching kick at the end. So that was kind of a, a good feeling for him, too. As we're talking about legacies, let's finish up uh, with the with the Belichick legacy and uh, what this does for him now, uh, six championships, and just, let me just, you, you, we've been talking about it, you know, you brought it up quite a bit during uh, uh, this show, Evan. The fact is, you know, w- would you say that maybe outside of Super Bowl thirty six against the Rams, this might be the best 
coaching or even just this year's team might be the best coaching performance of Belichick's career? Or would you put it ahead of 36 uh, that season? Yeah, it's certainly up there. I, I For some reason, and maybe this is just nostalgia, I, I don't think that 36 can ever be beaten. Just the, the greatest show on turf was this Rams offense was great, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't that offense. Right, 14-point underdogs go in that Super Bowl. Yeah, it wasn't Kurt Warner. It wasn't multiple Hall of Famers, Marshall Paul, guys at Bruce, Torrey Holt. Everybody knows the names. It, it, that offense has five Hall of Famers on it. This offense does not have five Hall of Famers. It has a really good young coach that is terrific at doing what he does. And it has some players like Todd Gurley and Brandon Cooks who are above average, uh, you know, certainly players or to maybe even great players. So those players are very good, but those players are not going to the Hall of Fame. Gurley, maybe if he has, you know, a 10-year career at this rate, he has a chance at sniffing the Hall of Fame, but he's certainly not Marshall Falk. So, and he certainly was, he was injured or whatever the case is was going on with him in this game, he certainly wasn't at his best, and that was a huge factor well in the game. So I, I think that for Belichick, like I said earlier, the biggest thing is is that whatever it takes to win, whatever direction the team needs to go in, that's the way it takes them. You know, after they lost Josh Gordon, the numbers don't exactly support this, but the King staff kind of insists that they became a base, you know, heavy personnel team. Their base off was James Devlin on the field and at 12 personnel with, you know, a fullback or running back, two wide receivers in the tight end, which is a very old school formation, a very old school personnel grouping that's dating back to, you know, the beginning years of the NFL. That is, was their base, and they kind of morphed out of that. And then the defensive side of the ball, they kind of went over some of the tendencies that they've kind of grown accustomed to over the Matt Patricia years this year and really started to be more aggressive and get after the quarterback and let the pass rush lose a little bit and trust the guys on the back end to cover. So I think that the ability to just kind of morph week to week and keep changing things and keep evolving to the game and evolve to what his players and what what personnel he has to put on the field is what makes Belichick just better than anybody else. And we've seen it in this postseason run. I mean, the Chiefs, the Chargers, and the Rams were three teams that – beat up on the league and were really, really good at what they do, but they didn't have that plan B. Uh, the, the Chiefs almost did. They were came the closest. In the, in the second half of that game, in, in Arrowhead, they really put some man beaters and then were able to find some things. We've seen that fourth quarter of the game opened up a little bit for them. But overall, it, those three teams are kind of like kryptonite teams or, uh, you know, Novocaine. They're just going to keep giving it to you and, and eventually – you know, you're going to fall, and the Patriots are just so able to kind of game plan themselves in situations where they can beat teams like that, that if you just sit in the same coverage or if you play the same offense, that if you do that against Bill Belichick, you're going to lose. Yeah, well, so appropriate, uh, Evan, as you said. Uh, the Patriots are using a throwback offensive formation for what uh, ultimately proved to be a throwback type of Super Bowl, but uh, the sixth, the one uh, for the Patriots uh, franchise, and uh, uh, just, uh, well, I guess we're just going to keep savoring this uh, for, for a while. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the only thing they can top this now, and it, it may seem a little improbable, but uh, you already had the Red Sox beating the Dodgers and the Patriots beating the Rams. How about the Celtics and Lakers this spring? Yeah, it's uh, it, it seems like Boston. Obviously, we're on an 18-year run that's unprecedented. 12 championships in 18 years, but this year in particular, I mean, 
won the World Series trophy early and, and the Super Bowl trophy. So that's pretty uh, crazy, too. And the Celtics and the Bruins that, you know, maybe aren't favorites to win their respective leagues. But it, I don't think anybody would be that completely shocked if one of them made a run either. Sure, throw the Bruins in Kings, too. It's all about beating L.A. now in the uh, Boston sports universe. Uh, Evan Lazar, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming on uh, the Toddcast, and hopefully we can do this again. Maybe we can uh, check in with you during uh, free agency time and uh, uh, see what some of the Patriots' offseason moves are going to be. Absolutely. Always fun. All right. Well, again, uh, big thanks to uh, Evan Lazar. You can follow him uh, on uh, Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. He writes for clnsmedia.com. And, of course, don't forget to follow us on social media by searching Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at TOSTBMC. We'll give you the links to the latest TOST Toddcast as soon as they're available. So until next time, this is Todd Bloniars. Thank you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.